Welcome to the Joel Atta Show. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing to the podcast. Uh, it's been a while, but we got lots of stuff to talk about. The Mariners are about halfway through the season, just over the halfway mark. Uh, they're under 500, but there's lots of things to be positive about. Lots of moves and uh, things happening right before the trade deadline next week. So we're going to be talking about a lot of the things that Jerry Depoto can do to make this roster better and what he's already done this season to make the roster better. Lots of things about the Mariners that are, are positive, but also a few things that uh, we can improve on, and we'll talk about both of those things. Also, Seahawks, five days away from the start of training camp. I can't wait for football. I, I don't know about you guys, uh, but I just sit around and just daydream about watching football on Sundays again, and that's coming sooner than later. Uh, just a couple weeks, we'll have preseason football, and uh, we're going to talk about the Seahawks. What can they do to get back to an elite level? Uh, I believe there's three different things uh, that they can take steps for to get back to an elite level. So we'll discuss that. Mariners, Seahawks, it's the Joel Latta Show. All right, and welcome back to the show. We're going to kick it off with some Mariners. Okay, the Mariners are third in the AL West. They're 48-50. But at the beginning of the season, our expectation with the lineup that we had, the trades that we made, the setup that Jerry Depoto gave us, as far as a 1-9, through nine, just a solid lineup with the hopes of Felix Iwakuma and Drew Smiley all being in the rotation, they've haven't met expectation. They haven't met what everyone was saying at the beginning of the year was like, man, if this if this team can stay healthy, if they if they can stay healthy, they're going to be good. And that hasn't been the case. Uh, the injury bug has hit the Mariners hard, uh, but they're still two games out of the wild card as of today, 48 and 50 on July 22nd. Um, they're right there within striking distance. But there's a few things that I'm I'm really nervous about moving forward, and, and if you can't go any further without talking about pitching inconsistency. As a team, they're 4.47 ERA, which is in the lower half of the American League. And that scares me. Uh, 4.47 and being in the lower half of the American League, when in the past the Mariners have prided themselves on good pitching. When The, the days of having Felix Hernandez, Cliff Lee in your rotation, uh, the bullpen being solid, that's not that's not the case this year. Drew Smiley was supposed to be a guy that was going to help solidify and be your number three behind Felix and Iwakuma. Uh, he has to get Tommy John surgery. He's going to be out until probably 2019, after he's already out of contract for the Seattle Mariners. So there's a high high probability and a high chance that the that Drew Smiley doesn't even pitch for the Seattle Mariners ever, and that he signs with another team after 2018. I'm hoping that they can find something. Uh, to get done with him, because I really do like Drew Smiley, and I think he'd be a good addition, especially at Safeco Field. But man, injuries have killed this pitching staff. Uh, it's, I mean, there's not much else you can say. Uh, they've been hurt. They can't, you can't do much when you have guys like Gaviglio uh, and Bergman making starts for this team, and Andrew Moore for that matter. When you expected guys like Drew Smiley, Hisashi Iwakuma, Felix Hernandez to be at the level that they have been the last few years and it just doesn't work out it's hard to it's hard to win games when your pitching is bad and Iwakuma's on the shelf he you know when he was pitching uh, to try to make his rehab to come back to the Mariners he wasn't even hitting 85 miles an hour so the pitching has been inconsistent you guys got you got guys like Edwin Diaz in the bullpen uh, who's been lights out at times he just had a stretch where he had four saves in four consecutive days and he was unbelievable but back in May and April, 
he was blowing blowing saves left and right. And so you've had this kind of this roller coaster approach to the season, especially in in the in the bullpen, where you didn't know what you were going to get every night. You didn't know if it was going to be lights out. You didn't know if it was going to be uh, just holding on for dear life and trying to get out of there with a win. So the pitching has been wildly, wildly inconsistent. And so uh, we got 10 days or so now for Jerry Depoto to add to this rotation. Now he made a he made a a trade a couple days ago. Uh, Tyler O'Neill, one of the top prospects in the organization, which a lot of people did not like that move. A lot of people did not like that trade because they wanted Tyler O'Neill to be in a Mariners uniform, and I get it. He's a guy that is homegrown. We've invested in him. He's was raking in the minor leagues. Um, he was crushing it. He has lots of power. Uh, he's average in the outfield, but, you know, that's fine. But here's the thing. Here's the thing with Tyler O'Neill. Uh, we traded Tyler O'Neill out of a position of strength. The Mariners are deep in the outfield. When you have four deep on your major league roster with Ben Gamble, Jared Dyson, Mitch Haniger, and uh, Guillermo Heredia, when you have all four of those guys on the major league roster and they're all above average defenders and they're all playing or they're all hitting pretty well at this point, none of them have really suffered. Uh, Mitch Haniger's kind of dipped from the beginning of the year when he was really hot. But as a whole, you have an outfield that's performing really well. And so when you make a trade for a guy like Marco Gonzalez, which I'm getting back to the pitching inconsistency piece here, I'm just kind of tying it all together. But when you make a trade out of a position of depth for a position of need, that's a good trade in my opinion. Now, Marco Gonzalez, uh, he kind of reminds me, just from the tape I've seen, a lot of people compare him actually to Andrew Moore, uh, but I see more of a Jason Vargas. Uh, If you know Jason Vargas at all, he was with the Mariners for a few seasons uh, about five, six years ago. But that's a guy that is left-handed, he doesn't throw super hard, but he has a plus changeup, a changeup that just falls off the table. Uh, and he's he can throw it at any time for a strike. He can throw it at any count. That's Marco Gonzalez. Uh, he hasn't really done much at the big league level, only a few starts. He started for the Cardinals here a few months ago, uh, only three and a couple or three and a third. Uh, he gave up some runs. But at the at the minor league level, he's you know averaging a two and a half ERA. He's pitching well. And I think that Jerry Depoto is like, hey, we need this in our rotation right now because we are thin at the pitching rotation. And he's only 25. He was a first-round pick in 2013 by the Cardinals. He's from Gonzaga, which is kind of cool, a local guy. But we traded a position of uh, strength for a position of need. And that shows you that Jerry Depoto's not trying to um, – he's trying to win now. He's trying to win now, and he's trying to improve where we are inconsistent right now. Uh, the second thing that really, really, really is hindering the Mariners at this point is Felix Hernandez, man. Uh, he's been inconsistent this year. He's been hurt. And the major reason why is that he hasn't been able to control the fastball. He hasn't been able to control the fastball at all. Uh, it's been He's been leaving it over the plate. It's been getting crushed. It's been getting hit for home runs. It's been getting hit really, really hard. Uh, and he hasn't been able to throw it for strikes at times. And so when Felix Hernandez, who in the past has been a flamethrower, depended on the fastball, could throw the fastball anywhere he wanted in any count, and he'd get hitters out, that's not the case anymore. When you're hit, when you're sitting 89 to 91, like Felix is this year, 
you can't throw that low and low and in, or you can't just try to throw that at any any point. You have to mix it up. And what he's doing is he's doing what Felix has always done and just trying to blow it by guys. And he has to get more creative. He has to be able to get all four quadrants of the zone, uh, like Scott Service has told us that he wants us to do. If you listen to 710 ESPN Seattle, he's talked about that several times on Brock and Salk and with Rick Riz on the pregame show. What they're trying to get Felix to do, uh, he's not doing. And it's been kind of frustrating, to be honest, um, because a guy that's making $25 million plus, you want him to be able to adjust and figure out how to pitch when you're 32, 33 years old. So we'll see what happens with Felix. Um, 3.88 ERA. His strikeouts per nine is down uh, compared to what he's been. It's only it's in the eight right now, and he averages in the nine for his career uh, for strikeouts per nine. So it just those numbers are starting to slowly fade, and I'm hoping that Felix can find a way to bounce back. Um, obviously, the last three starts of, of this season, he's been better. Uh, but it's overall, it's not looking great for Felix for this year. I mean, he has to find a way. They have to find a way uh, to get him to buy in to making adjustments. And now I get it. This is a superstar. This is a guy that prides himself in what he does. But we have to find a way for Felix to get back to dominant level if we're going to be uh, the consistent winning team that we need to be. And then the third thing. Uh, just really quickly before we get to some positive notes, because I really think there's some positive things in this team. I think there's a lot of good things that we uh, have been doing this year, a lot of a lot of good things. But the last thing that's kind of hindering this team is situa- situational hitting has been terrible. Uh, the runners, the amount of runners that are left on base, even still with this lineup, one through nine being one of the most deadly lineups in the major leagues, it still is having this problem of leaving runners on base. Guys on second and third uh, with one out, or zero outs for that matter. And we're leaving them on base because we can't get, we just can't find a way to get a hit or get a walk and just get on base and move the runners over. And it's killed, I, I just can't tell you how many times in the seventh, eighth inning I'm, I'm sitting in my living room just watching the game and I'm just like, come on, it's two to nothing, we're down, there's two runners on, there's one out. Like, just get, just kind of chip away at this lead that they have. And it's infuriating to watch, like just a roll over ground out to second base for the left-handers, especially Kyle Seager. Uh, Kyle's having a really rough year, to be honest. He's not producing at the rate that he has in the past. Um, so the situational hitting has really killed this team, and they have to, have to, have to get better at it. It has to be a point of emphasis. Just to, in those situations where it's high pressure, uh, teams are about to come. Like teams are beating you in the seventh, eighth inning. And the situational hitting has to get better. Okay, so those are the three things that have been hindering this team. It's pretty obvious. Felix not being off, uh, Felix, uh, p- the pitching inconsistency, high ERA as a team, uh, having to start guys like Andrew Morgaviglio and Bergman, just not ideal. But here's the thing. There are some very positive things about the Seattle Mariners in 2017. Not uh, any way without this guy, Nelson Cruz. Uh, have to, we have to start with Nelson Cruz. He is the best, and this is a hot take for you. Get ready for a hot take. Nelson Cruz is the best free agent signing the Mariners have ever had. In the Mariners' history, he's the single best free agent signing in the entire franchise. Since he's come to Seattle, he's had 40-plus homers every year. Uh, his best averages, uh, and he's been an absolute invaluable leader for the young guys uh, in the locker room. Nelson Cruz has solidified the four spot in our in our lineup for the last three years. 
And, and to be honest, when Jackson made this signing at a four-year, $57 million deal, I remember, I, I remember it clear as day. I was driving in a car with my brother, and we heard it on the radio, um, listening to it. And I was like, oh, my gosh. They gave that much money to a 33-year-old. By the time he's done with that contract, he's going to be 37, 38 years old. What are they thinking? What is Jack Z doing? I remember saying that to my brother. And four years later almost, man, I'm so glad they did because he's been such an invaluable piece to this this offense and for this team, his leadership. Um, and he's just been a fun guy to root for, a fun guy to watch, and he has some of the best home runs uh, I've probably ever seen as a Mariner fan. Uh, secondly, to get more... Uh, you know, detailed, but the outfield production has been so much better, uh, even than last year and the year before that. Not having Nelson Cruz play right field has been such, oh my gosh, I can't even tell you. Uh, not watching Nelson Cruz try to play right field, no offense to the guy, like he's amazing uh, at at DH, but watching that guy in the field was, it was not fun last year or the year, couple years before that. Um, but this off or this outfield, it leads the league in run prevention. They do. And it's something that uh, the Mariners haven't emphasized in the years past. But when you have a, an outfield like Safeco Field, having a, a key defense like this, uh, key outfield, is is massive. Because that outfield is massive. And the left center field gap is huge. But when you have fast guys like Ben Gamble and Ger- uh, Gerard Dyson just kind of patrolling out there, it, it you feel secure that when a, a pop fly or a, a deep fly ball to left center or right center is hit, you're confident that they're going to make the play. And then Ben, ben Gamel, just on his own, uh, he's having a career year at the plate, hitting over 300 uh, consistently in the lineup. Like, that's not just like a hitting 300 because he's only pitching it or pinching in for another guy. He's the guy in left field, and he's been playing incredible. Uh, lots of more pop than I thought he was going to have, to be honest. His swing doesn't really project to be a power uh, swing, but he's had more home runs than we anticipated, and he's hitting the ball more consistently, uh, and he's finding the gaps really, really well. So Ben Gamble has really helped out with the outfield production. Uh, and then the third positive note I have that we can't go further without talking about uh, is Jerry Depoto. Jerry Depoto is absolutely crushing it as far as the personnel moves that he's made so far. He's crushing it. Gene Segura and Mitch Haniger instead of Taiwan Walker and Cattell Marte. Looking back on that, I, I I'm kind of I've been sitting back just thinking about like how in the world did Arizona think that they were going to win that trade? Gene Segura is leading the league in hitting it, hitting 338. And Mitch Haniger uh, early on without, you know, before his injury and before Aaron Judge of the Yankees went on an absolute tear. He was probably going to be leading the Rookie of the Year candidacy. These guys have been way, way better than I could have ever anticipated, and they're performing at a way higher clip than Walker and Marte. Marte's been terrible for the Diamondbacks, and Walker, I mean, he's been Taiwan Walker. Inconsistent. Uh, he looks dominant some starts. He looks really, really subpar on other starts. And we got the guys that are performing and they're contributing to this lineup every single day. Now, Gene Segura, uh, he scares me every time he runs on the on the base paths because he looks like he's going to get hurt every single time. But he's leading the league in hitting and he's been making incredible plays uh, defensively, p- 
playing shortstop at a way better pace and way better in general than I thought he ever would at shortstop coming to, from Arizona where he was playing second base. Uh, the game against Houston a couple weeks ago where in the ninth inning to you know save save the Mariners and then eventually in the 10th we would win the game. But he made three straight plays that were incredible. One at the plate and then two deep uh, throws to first base. Or no, one deep throw to first base and then a play at second. But man... Uh, he's been a huge upgrade than Cattell Marte at shortstop, and we absolutely killed that trade. Ariel Miranda, when when that trade happened, I was like, wow, wow what's going on here? Like, you just kind of traded traded away our garbage uh, just for a AAA starter, okay. But he's been the most consistent starter in the rotation. More consistent than James Paxton, who's been, who, who leads the team with wins, by the way, James Paxton does. Uh, but he's not the dominant guy that he usually is. There's, It's just up and down with him. It's like one good start, one bad start. One good start, one average start. And Ariel Miranda's just kind of been the rock. He's you know, a, a guy with the potential of being a fifth starter on a really good rotation, and this guy is just straight killing it. Uh, yeah, Ariel Miranda's been absolutely a beast and leads our team with e- in ERA. Uh, and then the third thing that Jerry Depoto's done is getting younger without sacrificing much at the big league level. And to point back to that, um, what he's done to be able to bring in the young outfielders and improve those spots, like Ben Gamble instead of Seth Smith, thank you, I'll take it. Uh, Mitch Hanniger in right field instead of Nelson Cruz, and Nelson Cruz moving over to DH, yes, I'll take that, thank you. Uh, The moves to get Gene Segura, like, yes, thank you. And getting guys that are actually going to contribute in their younger years um, and helping this team not be so aged. Because when you think about it, you're like, you're thinking about the stars of the team and you're like, yeah, Kyle Seeger, he's 30. Robinson Kiddo's 32. Nelson Cruz is 37. But then you start looking at the other positions and Danny Valencia is under 30. You got Ben Gamble, who's under 30. You got Mitch Hanniger's under 30. You got Mike Zanino, who's under 30. So what he's been able to do is producing, uh, getting production at the big league level from younger guys and, and not making it feel like it's just a, a, a retirement home in the Seattle Mariners uh, clubhouse. So J- Jerry Depoto has been an absolute monster at solidifying this roster. And going forward, I am incredibly encouraged in the direction that he's taking this organization. Even though they're 48 and 50, even though they're 30 or third in the AL West, and even though they're not... Uh, completely in the one or two spot for the wild card. I'm feeling positive overall about the Mariners. We're going to come back and talk about the Seattle Seahawks. It's the Joel Latta Show. All right, welcome back to the podcast. Joel Latta Show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joel underscore Latta, L-A-T-T-A. And, um, we just got done talking to the Mariners. Hopefully you tuned in for that. But now we're going to talk about the Seahawks. Five days, people. Five days until training camp begins for the Seattle Seahawks. And it's the, the week I've been waiting for um, to bring the show back to talk about football. Uh, there's no better time to do a podcast. There's no better time to talk about sports than when football is back. And it takes over my Sundays. It takes over my Mondays. It takes over my Thursdays. It's football in its back. So with the Seahawks this year, there's lots of things that have changed. There's lots of things that are kind of moving around, moving pieces, moving parts with the draft and 
um, p- positions kind of changing for different players. Uh, different starters going to be starting and playing more free agent acquisitions that we've made. There's all these moving parts, but the question I want to focus on today is what do we have to do as an organization? What do the Seahawks have to do to get back to the elite level that we saw from 2012 to 2014? Because I'll be honest, the last couple of years, I, I was excited. Uh, we got to the playoffs both years and I was really pumped and felt like there was a chance that they could make some noise. But when you watched the loss that we had in the playoffs against Atlanta last year, you realized really quickly that maybe the Seahawks' uh, elite status that we've seen the last several years is slowly starting to dwindle and actually maybe picking up some speed as they're going out the door. Um, And it's kind of nerve-wracking because this is a, you know, you don't get elite-level franchises very often. And so what do we have to do, or what does John and Pete have to do, what does Russell Wilson and the team have to do to get back to the elite level that they were at those so many years in the, uh, you know, just a few short years ago? And there's three things I'm going to focus on to answer this question. Number one, we have to run the ball. We have to run the ball. Pete Carroll's mantra as he came into Seattle from USC was we are going to be an organization that focuses on running the football. We're going to be an organization that does not waver in running the football. We will always run the football. Well, guess what? Mind blown. Uh, Here's something for you. The Seahawks did not run the ball more than they passed it last year. In 2016 and 2017, that, that year, the Seahawks passed the football more than they ran it. Now, there's some circumstances around that. You lost uh, your all-pro in, in Marsha Lynch, who temporarily retired and now is with the uh, Oakland Raiders. You had uh, Thomas Rawls, the, you know, the starter in waiting, get injured and not be dependable last year. You had an offensive line that couldn't protect the quarterback or make running lanes, for that matter. Um, your leading rusher left the team halfway through the season. Because he got let go because they didn't the Hawks didn't trust him. So there's these circumstances that led to that. But it's the first season that the uh, the Seahawks I keep wanting to say the Mariners, but the Seahawks did not run the ball more than they passed it. Now looking forward to this year, 27, 2018 or 2017, 27 or 2018, uh, we have an, a kind of a new fresh look at the run game. You've added free agent Eddie Lacy out of Green Bay who is a bruiser-type running back, a guy that, out of Alabama, um, has been known to make big plays, uh, been, a- been able to get yards at, you know, in big situations, but a guy who's also struggled with being overweight, um, and by all indications, he's kind of harnessed all of that this offseason, being with our trainers in Seattle. But Eddie Lacy's on board. He's going to be the number one back. You have... Uh, Thomas Rawls, who's going to be fighting for time, and I, I may be crazy by saying this, but I think that Eddie or not Eddie, I think Thomas Rawls is better as a backup. I think he's better as the number two guy in the organization. I don't think he's meant to be a number one. I don't think he's meant to take the brunt of the load of the carries. I think he's meant to be the burst of energy that comes in uh, on third down or comes in every other series because Eddie Lacy needs a breather. 
I think that that role plays better for him. I think that's what allowed him to be successful a couple years ago when Marshawn Lynch got hurt. Thomas Rawls came in and everyone's like, whoa, who is this guy? I think that's the perfect role for him, where he doesn't have all the pressure. He doesn't feel like he has to take on the world and, and run with it. I think he just needs to get his opportunity and do the best he can with it, and he'll be successful in that role. I don't think he is the number one guy that can take on every down. I think Eddie Lacy is much more suited for that, and I think that uh, the first down come September, whatever, the first week of the season, on first down, Russell Wilson's going to drop back and he's going to hand it off to Eddie Lacy. I think that's what's going to happen. And Thomas Rolls, he's going to be better served. He may be frustrated. He may you know, scratch and claw to try to get the starting job. But he's going to be better suited to be the backup. And then you have a guy named C.J. Procise who couldn't stay healthy last year. But when he was in there, he was an absolute firecracker. Just an absolute burst of energy into our team. He can catch the ball. He can run it. Uh, he had some amazing plays. Highlighting one of those, the play against Philadelphia when he had an 80-yard touchdown run. Um, that kind of helped give us a lead in that game and eventually win. But there's lots of moving parts with the run game, and I think that Pete, with what they've done, especially also with drafting players like Alex Car- uh, Alex Collins and then Carson, uh, there's lots of investment. There's n- like nine or ten running backs on the team um, as we move forward. So running the football has to be a, the number one priority. That's the first thing we have to do to get back to an elite level. Number two, uh, we have to get back to being a shutdown defense. You have to be get back to being a shutdown defense. Last year, uh, when Earl Thomas got hurt, we felt the difference in the backfield. And that's where a shutdown defense starts, is the defensive backfield. If Sherman, Cam, and Earl are all healthy, we have the ability to be shut down on defense. Because the way that I, the way that I understand it, the way that I see it happening, happening on, um, on the field is that when our defensive backfield is humming when they're going when they're at the top of their game the defensive line gets better the linebackers get better because if the quarterback has no one to throw to because they're just covered they're just like there's nowhere to go man that creates more time for the defensive line to get home to to rush the quarterback to sack the quarterback Um, it allows linebackers um, to be able to patrol and it allows them to cover tight ends better Um, it it just it breeds a better situation when those four guys are on the field and they're healthy. Now, the right cornerback position scares me. With Deshaun Shedd being injured uh, with the ACL and the knee reconstruction, it leaves a hole. And from all indication in, in rookie minicamp um, and, and you know the, the exercises that the Hawks have been able to go through so far this year, Keel Griffin, the cornerback um, that we drafted, has been, been nothing but impressive. But that's a whole whole lot different in rookie minicamp than being on the actual field on a Sunday in the NFL. It's a whole lot different. So I, I don't want to make any assumption. I don't want to try to say that he's going to be a superstar based on one minicamp that he did. But from all indication, he looks pretty good. And uh, that's the position that has to get covered. It has to be um, locked down. It has to be there um, because if, you know, the only – side they have to worry about is Richard Sherman. They don't have to throw that side. They'll just pick off on Keel Griffin. If he can't handle it, 
man, it's going to be like what we saw with Kerry Williams a couple years ago where they eventually just had to replace him because he was just getting burned. I, I remember specifically watching the Carolina game that year, and Kerry Williams got on that side specifically got burned for 10 receptions, like 175 yards and two touchdowns. So that's the philosophy of the op- opposing team if that cornerback position is not handled well. And at first, after Byron Maxwell left, the the Seahawks didn't know how to do, uh, deal with it. And so I'm hoping this second time around, now that Deshaun Shedd is, is injured and he's making his rehab and he'll come back probably in November, that they have to get Keel Griffin comfortable, that he has to play on a high level or else he's going to get torched and picked apart. So it all starts with the defensive backfield. We have to get back to shutting down defense. And the second piece uh, to playing shutdown defense for the Seahawks is defending the tight end. Now, for those of you that are Seahawks fans, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But the Seahawks have had a massive issue in the past of defending the tight end. I think of specific uh, instances of this. Travis Kelsey has burned the Seahawks. Uh, Greg Olson burned the Seahawks. And it all happens on the seam route. It all happens on a route. Just, you know, they line up next to the right tackle or the left tackle, and they just run the seam and they get through, and they just burn us for chunk yards. And that's one of the main strategies that opposing teams have against this defense is because we've never learned how to truly cover a tight end. We've never really truly had knew how to fix that because it's happened over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so the Seahawks have to figure out um, how to defend the tight end. What, what do they do? Do they slide a linebacker over to, to cover a tight end specifically? Most linebackers aren't as fast as the athletic tight ends in this league, um, but just get bodies on the tight ends. We have to figure out to do that because if we don't do that, we're going to get burned and torched every time, and that's something we have to address. You have to figure that out. If we, they want to play elite defense, you have to have a shutdown defensive backfield, and you have to pre- defend the tight end. Um, and then the third thing and the final thing, I don't want to – talk up too much because it'll hinder hinder us in future weeks of having topics to talk about. But the third thing that the Seahawks have to do this year to be an elite team and to get back into an elite defense or a, a elite level as an organization is number 3, you have to protect Russell Wilson. You have to protect Russell Wilson. Uh, this is still a team that has the least amount invested in the offensive line. Uh, they gave 8 million dollars to Luke Jokel and they're still at the bottom of the league in investment in offensive line. And what we found out last year is that Russell Wilson isn't a robot. I think we kind of fell prey to the, to the thought that um, Russell Wilson's athletic. Russell Wilson can run. Russell Wilson's not going to get hurt. He hasn't yet. He's never missed a snap. He's never missed a practice. It's going to be all good. We'll just we'll throw $8 million at the offensive line, pay everybody else, and everything's going to be fine. What happens week two? Oh, and Dominic Sue, a monster, steps on Russell Wilson's leg, and he's hurt. Great. Now what do we do with an inexperienced offensive line and Russell Wilson can barely move? We struggle. And Russell Wilson has his weakest year statistically. Um, the run game suffered because of that. The zone read struggled because of that. And so uh, we have to get better at protecting Russell Wilson. He's not a robot, and he's proven that he can get injured. Now, he's an absolute superstar, uh, for the fact that he um, still played through some of those injuries, like an MCL sprain and then a high ankle sprain or whatever, like just a super, super intense injury that most players wouldn't have played through. And Russell Wilson did because he cared that much about his team. 
And with the current situation at backup quarterback, we probably wouldn't have won five games with uh, Trevon Boykin as the starter. No offense to him, but he was a rookie. And throwing a rookie with who's not that good into that kind of situation, it's it would have been tough to win games. But Russell Wilson proved that he's not a robot, that he is susceptible to injury. And so what they have to do this year, George Fant um, has to get better. If he's going to be the left tackle of the future, which they, I mean, from all, all indication, they keep putting him in there, and John Schneider and Pete Carroll have not wavered, they want him to be the left tackle of the future. A guy who, before last year, had never played uh, any left tackle. He was a backup tight end in college, and he played basketball. But they transformed him into a left tackle. Now, here's some good news on George Fant. He's been working with Walter Jones, who's probably the greatest left tackle to ever live this offseason. Uh, and he's gotten into shape. His body looks better from all indication. Um, and that, that's a good sign. doesn't say anything about what's going to happen on the field. I just want to clarify that. Um, but the signs are there that he's taking steps to get better. Because ultimately, uh, last year in the games that he was in, he wasn't terrible. He wasn't, he wasn't the worst at, at playing left tackle. He certainly um, wasn't great, but he wasn't terrible. And then you have Luke Jokel, who uh, is a massive wild card uh, for me uh, because he's getting his knee reconstructed, and he's recovering from that. He's a guy that in Jacksonville played really well at guard, um, but then he got hurt, and that's kind of been the story of his career is injuries. And so when you sign a guy for $8 million a year and his history is injury, that scares me, especially when you need to protect a $25 million or $20 million quarterback in Russell Wilson. So... If he can play just decently and stay healthy, that left side, I think, can be okay. It still kind of concerns me that they are trusting an injury-prone left guard and a second-year rookie or second-year player that's never played in college um, to be the left side of the line on Russell's blind side. But, man, it's just going to be one of those things where you got to kind of feel it out. And hopefully, and most people believe this, that they take the right step and they get better this year instead of taking a step backwards. Now at center, you have Justin Britt and a guy who was trying to find his way in the league. He couldn't play left or right tackle. He couldn't play guard. And then he finally settled in last year at center and was almost a pro bowler. He played really well. Um, and this is a guy that's going to get paid at the end of the year. So I expect Justin Britt to play at a high level again. Because if he wants a contract here, he's going to have to play well again because he's going to have to be kind of in a prove-it situation. Because it'd be very easy for the Seahawks organization at um, the negotiating table to say, okay, you had one good year, but the previous three were not that good at all. So you got to prove it. And what did you do this second year at center? What did you do? At, you know? And so there's this opportunity for him to sign in the middle of the season my guess is that the Seahawks are going to try to push it off till after the season. They want, they really want to see the jury on Justin Britt. Is he going to be the same guy that he was last year, or is he going to be a guy that struggles like he did at left or at guard and at right tackle? So Justin Britt, the kind of the jury's kind of still out on him. As good as he played last year, and as positive as a lot of people are on him, <clears throat> he's not a, a sure bet to repeat what he did last year at center. Uh, and then at right guard. You have Adea Bushi, you have Glowinski kind of battling it out for that position. Glowinski played left guard last year, um, going to be making that switch. And so it's going to be kind of a competition. Adea Bushi, I don't know a ton of, uh, to be honest, I don't know a ton about. Um, but the guys are really high on him. He's young. Um, 
he played well in Houston. But you know what you have in Glowinski. Glowinski is that guy that is kind of the road grader in the run game. He just mows people over. He struggles in the pass protection um, a ton, which I think is why they moved him from the left side, which is Russell's blind side, um, to the right side so that they could, you know, kind of ease him back in and kind of get him better in pass protection, to be honest, um, because he really struggled with that last year. Lots of false starts, lots of um, getting blown by in a lot of situations. And so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Odeo Bushi at right guard to start the year because he's slightly better in pass protection um, and they really, 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 really want to protect Russell Wilson, which is the whole key. If they Honestly, if you guys agree with me, the three things that have to has to happen, this is one of them. You have to protect Russell Wilson. And if Glowinski can't do it in the pass protection, then he's not going to play. And then right tackle, finally, uh, and then we'll close up shop here, is... Jermaine Effetti. Jermaine Effetti last year played right guard, um, and he played well at times. He's a guy that, man, it was either like, this guy is unreal. He's just pushing everyone back. He's making holes. He's making space. <clears throat> or he was a guy that was stepping on people's feet. He was um, creating false starts. He was playing pretty poor. Like, it was really back and forth with Jermaine Effetti. And you're you can kind of hear the similarities in my uh, descriptions of these guys because a lot of them are also really inconsistent. And so we got to kind of get this glue put together. They got to find a five and just stick with them. Um, if it's going to be uh, Fant, Jokel, Britt, Abushi, Afedi, stick with those five guys in camp. Let them gel. Let them get to that point. Jermaine Afedi played right tackle at Texas A&M. Um, that, that's where he probably is most comfortable and he's moving there into the, this year at the pro level. And really, we got to see what – it's kind of like the rest of the guys. you got to see what's what's going to happen. you got to kind of – the jury's kind of still out on him. Um, can he play right tackle at the professional level? Can he hold his own with some of the best pass rushers in the game? In practice, is he going to be able to hold Michael, uh, Michael Bennett? Is he going to be able to hold off Cliff Averill? That's going to be something extremely intriguing to watch out for and to listen for on uh, 710 and 950 as, you know, you hear Tony Softley analyze, you hear Brock Heward analyze, can Jermaine Effetti at right tackle hold up with Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett? That's going to be a huge key because, man, if he can't even hold those guys, which are two of the best pass rushers in the league, what's he going to do against Robert Quinn when we play St. Louis? What's he going to do, you know, when we play some of these high-level guys that are getting paid a ton of money to get the quarterback. And if he can't even hold our own guys in practice, he's going to get mowed in the games with thousands of screaming fans, with thousands of, you know, just different things going through his head. It's going to be at a a way more intense level. Um, So he's got to have to do that. He has to hold his own against those pass protect or those pass rushers. And so I, I don't sound super encouraged by the offensive line, I do think as a whole they're going to take a step forward, but it's really, 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 really intriguing to see what they do in training camp because if they can gel, if they can get this figured out, Russell Wilson's going to be a heck of a lot better off than he was last year. We'll come right back. We're going to do some closing comments. Uh, it's the Joel Latta Show. Thank you for listening to the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Joel underscore Latta. 